So I'm delighted to have with us uh, for the second round of talks today, Dr. Uh, Paul Marino. So this is a man who really needs no introduction, who basically has written the sort of Bible that we all use to govern the way we provide critical care, the ICU book, um, came to us a couple of months ago, sharing with us um, the Oxygen, the, the New Paradigm, which is the second book he's now written. And the talk was so exciting, so well-received, so popular. He was kind enough to um, to offer to come back to kind of share the final part of this story. So Dr. Marino, I've been waiting for the second part. I've been sitting on the edge of my seat since last time <laughs> we talked. Um, I rewatched your lecture again earlier today, just so I was completely caught up and made sure I knew where we left off. Um, and I'm really excited to hear part two of this saga. So Dr. Marino, thank you for being here with us. I very much look forward to this talk. Well, thank you for allowing me to uh, finish up my quest to change the way that we view and use oxygen. Um, I just want to briefly recap um, what I did in the first lecture. And this all starts with a, uh, uh, a book that I read when I was in medical school by Thomas Kuhn. Uh, Thomas Kuhn is a kind of an inter- was an interesting uh, individual. He's a uh, Harvard-trained physicist that uh, really gave up physics and went into uh, the history of uh, science and morphed into a uh, uh, sort of a philosopher um, in the realm of science. And, and, and basically, uh, what he proposes in this book is that um, each individual uh, area of science has uh, its own models that um, it believes are the way things should work. And um, these models are called paradigm in that uh, everyday science um, is not an attempt to discover new things, but to support the models that uh, are accepted. And um, when the uh, scientific experiments don't agree with the model, um, Rather than changing the model, uh, they blame the experiment. And um, only after a period of time, when people realize that the models aren't working, do they uh, decide to change things. And that causes what he what he calls the scientific revolution. And um, it, in his view of things, science doesn't proceed in a linear fashion, but rather um, in an inter- intermittent fashion. So um, there are abrupt discoveries that that take place in science. And the reason that um, this is important for what we're going to talk about is that um, this this is, uh, I think, what's occurring with oxygen. And that is, if we if we look at um, the paradigm that we all live by, um, it basically states that uh, the universal factor in, in death is um, impaired tissue oxygenation. And therefore, promoting tissue oxygenation um, is an important intervention for preventing death. However, if you look at um, the way things work, um, it, it's not quite that way. And um, what I'm showing you here is a, uh, a, a group of studies that were done uh, with the pulmonary artery catheter, which was designed to promote oxygen delivery. And basically, um, these studies uh, showed that uh, there was no real mortality benefit from uh, from that strategy. And uh, as Kuhn predicted in his book, when, um, when this uh, didn't pan out, um, they blamed the catheter rather than to uh, maybe blame the fact that promoting tissue oxygenation itself does not improve. So um, the paradigm that we have for oxygen really isn't work. And um, so because of that, um, I wrote this book, uh, sort of looking at oxygen to see if we could come up with a new paradigm. The fir- in the first lecture, um, I went over the first six chapters of the book, and uh, each chapter in this book is a question that uh, is answered in the in the process of the chapter. And so we went over um, just a bunch of things that really are, are aimed at debunking the uh, what I call the oxygen mythology. And uh, the upshot of that was uh, that according to what is known, the principal function of the heart, lungs, and hemoglobin is not to deliver oxygen, but it's to remove carbon dioxide. These are the conclusions to the to the first lecture, and that our vital organs normally operate in an oxygen-poor environment, and attempts to change this condition are met with resistance. And um, oxygen is a vasoconstrictor, red blood cell transfusions increase blood viscosity, and these things uh, tend to limit the ability to improve tissue oxygenation. In other words, the interior of the human body is largely devoid of oxygen, 
and it wants to stay that okay so that that was the conclusion of the first lecture and so the question is um assuming an intelligent design to the to the human um why is that well i think we all know why that is and that is that oxygen is a destructive molecule. And um, we know this because we uh, store our food in vacuum sealed containers. We wrap our sandwiches in cellophane. We store food in tightly sealed plastic containers, all because we want to keep the food away from oxygen in the atmosphere because oxygen decomposes organic matter, which is also us. So um, this lecture will be uh, devoted to um, the damaging effects of oxygen. And in the book, these are the chapters that are dedicated to that. So I'm not going to go over all of these chapters, but I think uh, the, the major ones we'll look at are defining oxidation, looking at reactive oxygen species uh, and what they do, their role in the inflammatory response, um, how oxygen can uh, contribute to aging, and then um, the last part of it is we're going to look at um, what prevents oxygen from or what limits oxygen from damage. And then um, the last, the very last part of it is I'll try to put. So um, let's begin with oxidation, because it turns out that oxidation is a way that we that we uh, make energy available to us, but it also uh, destroys. OK, and everything begins with photos. And that is most of the energy, almost all of the energy that we use on this planet uh, comes from this. And um, in, and in photosynthesis, <clears throat> what happens is the uh, radiant energy from the sun is, uh, is stored in the covalent bonds in um, organic molecules. So carbon has the uh, ability to form relatively strong bonds, um, but these bonds can also be disrupted. Uh, it's, these bonds have been compared to Velcro. Um, and so uh, the first step in photosynthesis is trans transferring the energy in sunlight to uh, these carbon-based molecules. Uh, there are um, a number of different types of carbon molecules, and they don't all have the same type of energy. So this is just an example of the bond energy in different kinds of molecules. Um, double bonds have a much higher uh, energy than single bonds. And uh, I included this to show you that ionic bonds are have a relatively low energy. So we're talking about uh, the bonding in uh, organic molecules, carbon structures life. So if these bonds can be broken, we can release the energy and um, use it to perform some more. Now, um, substances that are rich in these high energy bonds are known as fuel. And there are different types of fuels. There's fossil fuels. The fossil fuels are organic molecules that have been buried for centuries. And um, they include petroleum products, natural gas, and coal. We have biofuels, nutrient fuels that we all know, um, lipids, carbohydrates, ethanol, and then there's wood. If you look at the energy yield from these fuels, What's interesting is that lipids are uh, relatively high. They have a high energy yield and um, almost uh, close to gasoline. And they're a better energy source than, than coal, wood, or ethanol. What's interesting is carbohydrates are relatively poor. In. Okay, so um, how do we how do we get this energy that's stored in in the covalent carbon bond? Well, we do so by reacting with oxygen. Oxygen breaks the covalent bond in organic molecules. And what that does is um, it allows us to uh, release the energy, in which case we store it in ATP, and we lose it in uh, thermal energy. Notice here there's uh, energy conversion. We're not making energy, we're just converting. What's also interesting is that oxygen is a sort of a waste product of photosynthesis. However, it comes comes back to help us release the energy that's stored in organic. Right? Oxidation was originally termed by Lavoisier, who uh, is one of the discoverers of oxygen, and was originally intended to mean a reaction with oxygen. But chemically, oxidation is, is something different. Chemically, oxidation is the removal of electrons from an atom. And oxygen um, is able to do that because um, this is a, uh, an electron configuration of molecular oxygen. Uh, these are the electron orbitals here. And you'll notice that, um, by the way, I have to apologize. There's a fair amount of biochemistry in this lecture, but um, I'll try to make it brief. It's just that in order to understand this, um, we have to go through this, this biochemistry, which can be, but um, 
you can see here that oxygen uh, has four electrons that it needs to fill its electron orbital. So it, um, it will remove electrons from uh, other substances in order to fill these. The other thing I, I want to uh, point out is that um, the outer two electrons are uh, in different orbitals and they have a parallel spin. Um, there is a law in, uh, in uh, quantum mechanics, it's called the Pauli exclusion principle. Um, and basically it states that, that um, you can't uh, add that electrons in an orbital cannot have the same directional spin. They have to spin in different directions. Uh, so because of this parallel spin, you cannot add electrons uh, quickly to molecular oxygen. So it's it's an oxidizing agent, but it's a weak because of this pair. Um, so because it's a weak oxidizing agent, in order to really get the energy from uh, fuels, you need to do something. You need to beef up the reaction. And um, the way you can beef up the reaction is to add accelerants or to add a, a, an ignition. So here, I just want to look at two internal combustion. And combustion is uh, defined as a, as a uh, chemical reaction that uh, produces uh, heat. But basically, combustion is, is oxidation. So um, we've got two types of engine here. I'm just comparing metabolism to a car engine. Car engine is mechanical. Metabolism is biochemical. Car uses uh, fossil fuel. We use nutrient fuels. Uh, the car <clears throat> uses a spark to, uh, to get things going. We're always on. And the accelerants, uh, the car uses a high temperature, high oxygen. We use enzymes and an increase in temperature, not very high. Even despite all of this extra stuff, uh, the efficiency of uh, an automobile engine is uh, only 20%. And even the Formula One uh, motors um, will only get up to about 40%. And metabolism is at 35%. So, so combustion, oxygen-induced combustion, um, will release energy, but it's very inefficient in doing. Now, the other thing you have to remember is that um, in so doing, you're sacrificing the substrate mold. You're releasing the energy in the organic compound, but uh, the organic compound gets destroyed in the process. Now, there are about 9 million organic compounds, and um, very few of them are fuel. And if you have an organic compound that's not a fuel, and you're not putting it through all of these energy enhancing conditions, then all you're going to get is um, a decomposition of the substrate molecule. Okay, so oxidation releases energy, but it also destroys the molecule. And if it's not a high energy fuel, it's just going to destroy them. And we see that um, this process is called autoxidation. And it occurs at atmospheric levels of oxygen. So as I said, uh, oxidation removes the electrons. It destroys the substrate molecule. And um, of course, to get usable energy, you need, if you don't have these conditions, all you're going to get is a decomposition or degrading of the substrate molecule. Um, probably the most familiar example of this is rancidity. Rancidity is the oxidation of polyunsaturated fatty acids in food. Now, polyunsaturated fatty acids are very prone to oxidation. And when they oxidize, it produces a, a foul odor and a, uh, a bitter taste. But the definition of rancidity is actually a biochemical definition. We just equate the process with uh, food spoil. Um, as I said, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids are very, very prone to that. And uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids are also very prominent in vegetable oils, fish oils, because they have a high melting point, so they tend to be liquid at room temperature. And so uh, these things will all generate. <clears throat> and of course, the destructive effect of oxygen is not limited to the organic world. There is also uh, oxidative destruction in the inorganic world, and the most uh, recognizable example of that is rust. Rust is is a is a real problem. Iron oxide. Um, it's the major cause of, of failures on bridges. And actually, the cost of maintaining these bridges uh, and battling rust is something like 450 billion dollars, which is greater than the expense of all natural disasters. Rust in the inorganic world. Oxidation in the inorganic world is, is so oxidation then is is a chemical process that degrades organic molecules that can release energy, but it doesn't necessarily. And oxygen is major substance that promotes oxidation. Oxidation brings out the damaging nature of oxygen. And of course, we're talking about what oxygen is doing uh, in the natural world. Um, the next point we want to bring out is what reactive oxygen species. Now, the first thing to understand is that, um, oh, yeah, this is a, I love this quote. Um, Roy Wolford was the uh, 
was the doctor who did the original studies showing that uh, reducing nutrient intake can prolong longevity, reducing daily caloric intake by 40% in laboratory animals can up to double their life expectancy. And uh, this quote comes very appropriate as you In talking about um, these reactive uh, oxygen species, the first thing we have to look at is um, where are they uh, produced? Um, now, even though o oxygen releases the energy uh, in the natural world, it's not directly involved in um, in energy release uh, inside of, and that is that most of the oxidation reactions in the body are carried out by dehydrogenase or oxidase enzyme. The electrons that are removed are then transferred to these electron carriers, NAD, uh, FAD, and these electron carriers then uh, bring the electrons to the inner mitochondrial membrane, where they're where they're handed off to a series of uh, <clears throat> a series of proteins that uh, that carry out redox reactions and transfer the electrons along as these redox reactions are, are being carried out. Now, these uh, redox reactions generate hydrogen ions, which are then used to make a... At the end of this electron transport process, electron transport chain, um, you have to get rid of the electrons or the whole process will back up. And that's where oxygen comes in. Positioned in cytochrome oxidase, which is the last uh, enzyme in this electron transport chain, oxygen then um, accepts the electrons and gets reduced to water. Okay, so oxygen isn't directly participating in the way that we get energy. Uh, it's sort of sweeping up after the whole process continues. And in fact, any substance that can accept electrons would work here, but uh, we use oxygen. <clears throat> All right, so uh, let's look at what happens when we do metabolize oxygen in the electron transport at the end of the electron. Now, remember I said, because of this parallel spin, you cannot uh, reduce or add electrons to oxygen in one fell swoop. It has to be done in a series. And there are four electrons here that will fill oxygen, and uh, it has to be done in single electron react. Okay, so the metabolism of oxygen at the end of the electron transport chain occurs in single electron addition. And in so doing, it produces these reactive oxygen species that are themselves um, much more reactive and uh, more potent oxidants than oxygen. We have the superoxide radical, hydrogen peroxide, and the hydroxyl. Now, I want you to notice here that uh, reducing hydrogen peroxide to the hydroxyl radical requires iron. Iron is a very pro-oxidant uh, element, and I know there are there are those in the cardiology sphere that would uh, recommend giving intravenous iron to patients with heart failure. But here, I think we have to be careful. In, in patients that are critically ill, is to not make iron available to them if if, if possible. And you might recall that iron is there's very little free iron. It's uh, it's all tied up. You have transferring ferritin, ceruloplasmin, um, hematins. Um, very little iron is allowed to be free. And I think the reason for that to me is because iron will promote the production of reactive. And this is the one that we want to, this is the bad actor, the hydroxyl radical. The hydroxyl radical is the most reactive molecule that is known in biochemistry. It will react within three molecular diameters. And so the hydroxyl radical is the... Uh, is the reactive oxygen species that causes okay all, all of this reaction takes place within the cytochrome oxidase complex and normally only about two percent of these uh, intermediate metabolites but this is what we're talking about with reactive superoxide radical hydrogen peroxide hydroxide now there are others um, and um, I'll, I'll cover that there's an additional reactive oxygen species in granulocytes and that is granulocytes contain a, an enzyme called myeloperoxidase myeloperoxidase chlorinates hydrogen peroxide to form hypochlorous, and hypochlorite is the active ingredient in bleach. So this is a highly bactericidal agent that is uh, generated by granulocytes. So this is an additional um, reactive oxygen. And normally in granulocytes, almost half of the oxygen that's metabolized will go into the Now, uh, this is a list of um, the, react the reactive oxygen species, at least the ones that have 
garnered the most interest. And um, there are free radicals and non-radicals. Now, free, a free radical is an atom or molecule that has an unpaired electron in its outer orbit. So oxygen is a free Not all reactive oxygen species are free radicals. All right. Um, for example, hydrogen peroxide is not a free radical because um, it has all of its electron orbitals filled, but it's still an oxygen. So um, the free radicals, we've got superoxide and hydroxyl radical. That's that's what we're going to really focus on here. Uh, the peroxyl and the alkoxyl radicals, uh, not so important at this point. Um, the non-radicals, uh, we mentioned hydrogen peroxide, hypochlorous acid. Singlet oxygen is another one, very important. Singlet oxygen is a uh, species of oxygen where the uh, electron in the two unpaired in the two parallel spin orbital, the electron gets bounced from one orbital to the other so that um, it, it becomes paired appropriately. And um, singlet oxygen is responsible um, a lot of the uh, damage that's done uh, in the eye because ultraviolet light can uh, create singlet. So things like retinitis pigmentosa are uh, partial singlet. All right, so um, th these are the reactive oxygen species that we're talking. And um, what do they do? Um, the major damage for reactive oxygens, obviously these things can degrade any organic molecule, any organic. But what we're going to be talking about here is the degradation of lipids, DNA, protein, and then I just want to briefly mention that. All right, let's start with lipid peroxidation. Now, remember we, uh, we said that polyunsaturated fatty acids are highly oxidizable, and they also are, um, have a high melting point, so they uh, tend to remain liquid at room temperatures or close. Um, our membranes are loaded with polyunsaturated, and the idea is that, that these, uh, these fats keep the membrane fluid, all right? And if they're oxidized, then uh, the membrane will get stiff. And um, lipid peroxidation is similar to rancidity. It's the same exact, but in the body, it's carried out by the hydroxyl radical. Now, the hydroxyl radical can literally abstract a hydrogen ion uh, from a PUFA to form water. And that that's, uh, requires a fairly strong. Now, in so doing, it uh, produces a radical. One of the characteristics of free radical reactions is a reaction between a free radical and a non-radical will always produce a radical. And that tends to foster chain reaction. Um, so when you light a candle, that flame is continuing because of chain reaction. In our now, in lipid peroxidation, what happens is the lipid-free radical will react with oxygen. As I mentioned in the first lecture, oxygen is not water-soluble, so it likes to sit in the interior of cell membranes. Well, when it sits there, what it'll do is convert a, a lipid-free radical into a peroxyl. And um, when that peroxyl radical reacts with another polyunsaturated fatty acid, you have a loop going here. So lipid peroxidation forms a chain reaction. And the important part about chain reactions is that once you initiate it, the initial stimulus can um, can be removed and the thing will keep going. So uh, lipid peroxidation is a chain reaction that will damage cell membrane. And the way it damages it is to, by oxidizing the polyunsaturated fatty acid, the membranes get stiff and then they get... So that's one reaction. The other is um, DNA damage. Now, um, I apologize. I hope I hope you can see this. This is actually from my book. Reactive oxygen species can damage DNA in a number of ways. And one is to shorten telomeres. So let me just... Um, <clears throat> let me explain to you if you don't know what telomeres are. Telomeres are repetitive sequences, uh, nucleotide sequences that have no genetic expression. But what they do is they cover the ends of chromosomes, just like uh, a plastic aglet covers the uh, tips of your shoelace. Now, um, the problem with telomeres is that they're synthesized by an enzyme that's only active during gestation, the telomerase. So uh, once you're born, um, you can't make any more telomere. And each successive cell replication will shorten the telomere. Now, cells have only a certain number of replications called a Hayflick limit. Usually it's about 50 to 70 replications. And after that, after that number of replications, what happens is the telomeres um, are basically ground down. They expose the end of the chromosome and uh, that initiates a DNA damage. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> and this DNA damage response uh, triggers a uh, 
protein. It's called P53. The number is just the molecular weight of the protein that um, will normally initiate uh, apoptosis, which is cell death, programmed cell death that does not incite an inflammatory response. Um, in other words, it's different than necrosis, which is a cell that is disrupted, but uh, incites. So that's that's a normal process of aging. Reactive oxygen species can can accelerate that because um, they can shorten tel. Now the other thing that reactive oxygen species can do is they can they can break the um, the uh, DNA strands and they can also oxidize the uh, nucleotide base. And guanine is one that's uh, particular. Uh, you can monitor urinary levels of guanine and they will go up. With now, um, there are two things that actually happen with age. One is um, apoptosis or cell death, and the other is cell senescence. Now, when a cell um, is senescent, it stops replicating, but it doesn't die. Senescent cells are resistant to apoptosis, but what they do is they secrete pro-inflammatory mediators, and these pro-inflammatory mediators uh, incite a form of inflammation that's been given the silly name of inflammatory. And this uh, inflammation is uh, considered to be responsible for a lot of age-related diseases like hypertension, osteoarthritis. So uh, cell senescence is, is very damaging. <clears throat> now, there, there are two forms of therapy that have been uh, based on this cell senescence called senescence. There are senolytic agents, which uh, actually take senescent cells and um, kill them so that uh, they're not producing this inflammation. Uh, there are a number of senolytic agents that are being studied. Uh, aspirin is, by the way, a senolytic agent. There are now about 12 human studies that are ongoing looking whether or not senolytic agents will impede aging. And um, there are very promising animal studies showing that uh, senolytic therapy not only improves longevity, but the animals actually are not as frail, they have less cognitive de decline, so they're not only living longer, but they're um, they're not getting old. Is now the other part of this senotherapy is <clears throat> to prevent the senescent cells from secreting their pro-inflammatory uh, mediator, and um, the agents that are being looked at for that are called senomore. Classic one is rapamycin, but th but this is another approach. Now, oxidant stress by initiating a DNA damage response will trigger both of these processes. Mild and moderate oxidative stress will give you senescence and uh, severe oxidative stress. So the DNA damage from reactive oxygen species can contribute. Uh, this is a study um, kind of showing that. This is the oxidized DNA in cardiac muscle. It's an animal study. Uh, the guanine residues, once again, looking at that. And uh, remember, I had mentioned that caloric restriction can improve longevity. Well, caloric restriction also decreased the um, degree of oxidation of DNA by reaction, maybe by decreasing the production of reaction. And of course, along with that calorie restriction and reduction in DNA damage is a uh, an improvement in survival. Now, this is done in small laboratory, but there's no reason to believe that same sort of... So calorie restriction here, you can see, was associated with significant... So reducing the, the oxidation of, of uh, DNA nucleotides is, is associated with... All right, the last thing I want to mention with uh, reactive oxygen species is the reaction with nitric oxide. And that is that uh, the superoxide uh, radical readily reacts with nitric oxide. And um, nitric oxide, as you know, is important for maintaining the fluidity of blood. It maintains, it's a vasodilator. It prevents platelets from sticking to each other and helps to maintain blood. Um, that will be taken, that's taken away by the actions of super. And not only is that taken away, but um, a, uh, a non-radical is produced called peroxynitrate, which is a very powerful um, oxidant that can um, denature proteins in the interstitial matrix, and it can also damage. So uh, this reaction here is considered uh, a possible contributor to the, the hypertension associated. All right. So uh, that's what reactive oxygen species are. They're, um, they're derivatives of um, oxygen that are more reactive than the... Uh, now let's look at what these things do in... in, in and uh, so um, what I'm going to describe is the actions of re reactive oxygen species. In, in, and um, not only is oxidation affiliated with inflammation, but I believe that inflammation is... is uh, that the inflammatory response 
is all about oxidation. So let's let's see how that works. First of all, neutrophil activation. When neutrophils are activated, there's a 20-fold increase in oxygen consumption in the neutrophil. But that oxygen consumption is not for not for energy consumption. It doesn't take place in mitochondria. Um, it's basically oxygen being being rooted to the production of reactive oxygen. Okay. So, and this all takes place because of an enzyme called NADPH. Now, the oxidase enzyme will add an electron to uh, oxygen, uh, and in this case, uh, NADPH is donating an electron, so it's called NAD. This is similar in theory to the cytochrome oxidase reaction that um, I explained earlier. So, um, th this NADPH oxidase sits on the cell membrane, and it's activated by a number of different things. In this case, would be cytokine. And when it gets activated, it starts to generate reactive oxygen species, both inside the cell and outside. And um, these reactive oxygen species then end up in these granules. So when neutrophils get activated and they're creating these granules, um, they're filling the granules with reactive. And um, so what do these reactive oxygen species do? Well, the first thing they do is they, they're involved in phagos. So because the NADPH oxidase enzyme is on the cell membrane. It's called NOC. Um, when, when the cell invaginates to kill bacteria, the uh, enzyme is situated so that um, you can generate reactive oxygen species inside the, the area that's invaginated. So in this case, we're, we're generating superoxide radicals that will then form hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide is um, the reactive oxygen species is believed to travel the furthest and it readily crosses cell membrane. So um, hydrogen peroxide can get inside cells very easily. And once it's inside the cell, if there's enough iron there, it'll form the hydroxyl radical, which will then go ahead and kill, kill the cell. In this case, uh, we have a bacterium. As you know, bacteria are, um, they, they depend on iron for their survival and they have a lot of iron. So once the hydrogen peroxide gets inside, and if there's enough iron, it'll generate the hydroxyl radical. The hydroxyl radical will will kill the bacterium by damaging its uh, itself. All right. So this is how phagocytosis. Now, in addition to that, and I hope this isn't too confusing, but in addition to that, when the neutrophils activate, the NOx enzyme is going to generate reactive oxygen species in the extracellular. And of course, that's going to generate peroxynitrate, which I mentioned is a powerful oxidizing agent. It's going to generate hydrogen peroxide, which can get inside cells and cause damage by generating hydroxyl to the parenchymal cells of the host organism. <clears throat> of course, when the uh, neutrophil degranulates, it's going to release its myeloperoxidase, and it will form hypochlorous acid. Now, the hypochlorous acid will uh, inactivate uh, any bacteria that are in the interstitial, but it can also damage uh, print. All right, so in the inflammatory response, we've got a lot going on here, and all of this is oxidation, all of this now. All right, so uh, just, just to review, the Reactive oxygen species participate in a number of different steps in inflammation. Um, uh, I mentioned these. Um, there's also extracellular matrix injury. What's interesting is uh, inflammatory pain has been related to superoxide radical because there are there are mimics to uh, superoxide that uh, can produce an inflammatory. And um, this uh, brings up, I think, some very important implications for uh, the way that we can treat inflammatory pain without using opiate. Um, and the other thing, of course, is parenchymal cell injury. And um, we'll deal with that in a second. So um, this this just shows that um, there is, in fact, an increase in the production of reactive oxygen species in inflammation. This is a study, an animal study, where they were looking at, looking at hydrogen peroxide and exhale gas, which, by the way, is not easy to collect. I've tried, but in uh, elective surgery, um, there was uh, there was no exhaled hydrogen peroxide, and then in patients that had acute respiratory failure. Those with ARDS seem to, seem to be producing. And um, this whole concept of exhale breath analysis, I think, is very important, and we'll touch on it uh, later. But I think it is holds a, a very important part in the future of monitoring. Now, um, it's not only the production of, of oxidants that, that uh, we're concerned about. It's, it's their effect. So um, this, is, this is from a study uh, looking at, uh, at products of lipid peroxidation 
in patients who uh, had septic shock. And um, these, are, these are plasma levels of, uh, in this case, I think it's malondialdehyde. But uh, non-survivors had much higher uh, levels of um, these products of lipoperoxidation, indicating that uh, oxidant-induced injury was uh, more prevalent in non-survivors than in survivors. Now, of course, the question is, is that a cause or is that just a, a manifestation of the tissue injury? And it's very likely to be a cause. And uh, this is from an old study looking at uh, what oxygen does in survival. And, you know, this this whole idea of the reactive oxygen species uh, being damaging and inflammation um, stems back to um, the use of oxygen. And most of the people that we take care of are inflamed. And so the use of oxygen becomes very slight, uh, pouring kerosene. So um, this study here from 1989 just showed that in an animal model of sepsis, sequel ligation, and puncture, as you increase the FiO2, the uh, survival goes. Um, there are now some studies in, in ICU patients showing a uh, an association between higher FiO2s and mortality. But, you know, those studies are are difficult to interpret because of the number of variable clinical. This makes sense in terms of how, how reactive oxygen species participate in it. All right, so we have uh, oxidations damaging. Um, oxygen produces reactive oxy oxygen species, which uh, produces the, the oxidation-induced injury inside of us. And um, the next part of this story is um, how are we protected from? And that is... Um, and that's related to, um, I think, uh, the question of why do we decompose? What is it about the moment that we die that causes us to start to decompose when the moment before death we weren't decomposed? That's, and I think the answer is antioxidants. You know, people always ask me, well, you know, how important are antioxidants? Everybody's taking them, but does it really make any difference? And my answer to that is always, uh, if you're looking at our endogenous antioxidant protect. Just think of what happens after you die because you're not producing antioxidants. Okay? Now, um, once you uh, stop producing antioxidants, then oxidation is going to take over, and then and then we start. So, I want to look at the um, the antioxidant question, and um, we have a number of different chemicals that have antioxidant activity, and the the party line is as long as they're balanced, everything with the oxidant activity, everything's okay. But if oxidant activity exceeds antioxidant activity, then you have a condition of unopposed biological oxidation, which is called oxidants. Okay? So um, let's look at uh, some of what seem to be the major antioxidants. And, and the first one is intracellular antioxidants. And the major one appears to be glutathione. Glutathione is a tripeptide and it has a subhydro. Now this subhydro group is on the cysteine molecule is the important part of the glutathione. Glutathione is also used to transport drugs, but its antioxidant effects are, are due to this. Well, how does it act? It acts by diverting hydrogen peroxide away from the formation of hydroxyl radicals. So instead of forming hydroxyl radicals, the glutathione sulfhydro will donate electrons to directly reduce hydrogen peroxide to water. In order to do that, it needs an enzyme called glutathione peroxide. And this enzyme in humans requires selenium. Only in humans, it requires selenium. So selenium has antioxidant activity by serving as a cofactor for glutathione. Now, um, there's more to it, and that is that um, glutathione has to be maintained in the in its reduced state in order to function as an antioxidant. In order to do that, the oxidized glutathione has to be uh, converted back to the reduced form, and that involves a, an enzyme called glutathione reductase, and um, the electron donor in that case is NADPH, which comes from the pentose phosphate. <clears throat> And uh, one of the uh, things that's required for the activity of the pentose phosphate shunt is, now I include this because you've probably seen a, a study um, by Paul Merrick where they gave thiamine as well as vitamin E as an antioxidant. And, and uh, the antioxidant property of thiamine comes, come, okay. So this is the whole glutathione redox. And it's considered to be the um, the major system for uh, antioxidant activity inside. Now, I should also mention that there's another intracellular antioxidant, um, superoxide dismutase. Now, superoxide dismutase was actually the first antioxidant covered in 1960 and um, by McCord and And it was the first demonstration. So what they did was they isolated this enzyme and they gave it to animals and there was much less uh, tissue damage uh, in these animals. It was the first demonstration really that, that oxygen could damage 
damaged uh, tissues and that it could be protected. Um, so it was the first antioxidant that was discovered. Um, unfortunately, its, its function um, as an antioxidant um, doesn't help us in terms of therapy um, because um, in order to give a superoxide dismutase, it doesn't cross cell membranes, difficult to get inside. But the other thing about superoxide dismutase, even though it's an antioxidant, it produces an oxidant. So in order for it to function, you've got to get rid of hydrogen peroxide. If you can't get rid of hydrogen peroxide, you're, you're going to actually increase superoxide dismutase. And for the last 30 years, uh, innumerable studies have attempted to utilize the antioxidant properties of soup. It's just not worth Glutathione is. So some facts about glutathione. It's um, the, the most abundant intracellular antioxidant. Uh, it's present in millimolar concentrations. It's usually kept in the uh, reduced state. Um, more importantly, it's produced intracellularly. doesn't readily cross cell membranes. Intracellular levels are three orders of magnitude greater than plasma levels. It has a short half-life, and um, it's abundant in the epithelial lining fluid of the lungs, which makes sense because the lungs are the organ that are exposed to uh, the highest concentration. Glutathione is depleted in a number of, uh, a number of uh, conditions that, that we deal with, especially inflammatory conditions. And of course, um, acetaminophen hepatotoxicity is the, uh, is the poster child of glutathione depletion because the toxic levels of acetam the toxic effects of acetaminophen are due to a metabolite that is normally cleared by glutathione and uh, when glutathione is deficient it damages the liver so the liver is acetaminophen hepatotoxicity is actually an oxidant induced injury um, the other thing I think that's important is that fasting depletes and this is from an animal study where they're looking at GSH levels and leukocytes and after seven days of fasting that's almost a 50. A lot of the patients that we take care of are um, elderly people that are malnourished. So, um, so uh, altered nutritional status compared to glutathione. Now, you can't give glutathione because it doesn't cross cell membrane um, and it has a very short, short half-life of only a, only a few minutes. So you can't give glutathione, but you can give this other surrogate of glutathione called N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine is, uh, it's got the sulfhydro group, but it gets across cell membranes. And how do you know it gets across cell membranes? Because it works in acetaminophen hepatotoxin. So you know it has to get inside cells and act as a glutathione surrogate. This is a very important and underutilized antioxidant. Um, just uh, from animal studies of N-acetylcysteine, this is uh, looking at reduced glutathione in the lungs, at one week, uh, and even breathing 100% oxygen will reduce glutathione levels. If you then add N-acetylcysteine, uh, you can reduce mortality. Now, these are small laboratory animals, and 100% oxygen kills these. So um, N-acetylcysteine will reduce the mortality uh, from 100% uh, oxygen in the lab. I want you to notice the dose here is given relative. Um, now, let me just say that N-acetylcysteine is being used for a number of different things. Uh, the, the latest thing is um, it, it appears to uh, to help in the recovery from uh, head injury, from concussion. But it's been used uh, to ameliorate uh, the the renal injury from radio contrast agents, although the dose was, was very small. I've been taking this stuff for like 30 years because I, I believe that uh, we slowly are. It's, it's an important antioxidant because it supports the major, and it just definitely deserves a lot. Um, the other uh, big antioxidant is vitamin E, um, which uh, helps to uh, block lipid peroxidation. Now, this is uh, what we went over before in lipid peroxidation. What vitamin E does, it's, it's lipid soluble. It sits inside the cell membranes, and it will take the peroxyl radical, and it will form a lipid hydroperoxide. And in so doing, it forms the vitamin E radical. But the vitamin E radical is not top. And uh, in order to regenerate vitamin E from this radical, you need vitamin C. So both vitamin E and vitamin C are um, are important. Um, and this just shows that um, you you can uh, you can help to limit uh, lipid peroxidation in response to 100% uh, oxygen breathing by giving vitamin E. So this is a lipid peroxidation product. This is an animal study. After breathing 100% oxygen, um, you uh, you have uh, lipid peroxidation products, but the vitamin help to amine. So um, without going through all of the antioxidants, because there are several, the major ones, I think, are glutathione, vitamin E, vitamin C, and also selenium. Selenium, I think, is very important because it promotes the activity. Now, um, 
you know, the 500 pound gorilla in the room is, well, if antioxidants are important, why haven't entities uh, shown more of a benefit? And um, the problem with antioxidants, first of all, antioxidant studies in animals are much more encouraging than they are in humans. But the antioxidant studies in humans have a number of significant flaws. And um, these are some. First of all, it's the endpoint. Um, you can't use mortality as an endpoint in um, studies of critically ill patients because there are too many variables. You know, everything we do is supposed to uh, supposed to save lives. I don't think so. You have to select a more immediate end. And for uh, the antioxidant studies, you know, they'll give antioxidants for a week and septic shock, and then look at the mortality. I think you need a more reasonable endpoint, and you need a measure of oxidant. And we'll talk about that um, a little bit later. I'll try to. The other is the anti the antioxidant selection. You have to support intracellular antioxidant activity. That's never done. You have to target lipid peroxidation, uh, which is almost never done. And the other thing is, uh, you don't know what the appropriate dosing is for these antioxidants. You have no idea what the appropriate dosing is. In order to determine the appropriate dosing, you have to have a measure of oxidant stress, and then you can then you can um, see at what level you start to reduce. And the other thing is there's 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 limited bioavailability. Um, um, and that is that the, a lot of these substances don't get inside of cells. Uh, the, the large, uh, for example, I mentioned superoxide dismutase doesn't get in cells. Glutathione doesn't get in cells. Um, and in animal studies, using liposomes to deliver these drugs has uh, improved the results dramatically. So we have to consider bioavailability. And also, we need to use NS. Any studies really that are using NS till cysteine as an antioxidant critically ill. Okay, so re related to the antioxidant uh, consideration is when is oxygen therapy safe? Now, we've all been taught that, you know, you keep the FiO2 below 60% and everything will be okay. But um, really, the, the um, ability of oxygen to damage tissue, especially the lungs, um, is related to the balance between oxidant and antioxidant. So if you are antioxidant depleted, then the lower levels of oxygen are going to damage the lungs. So um, I don't think there's any level of oxygen that can be considered safe until you know what, what your uh, status of antioxidant protection. And this just goes to show that. Um, this is an animal study looking at survival, days of exposure to 90% oxygen, and in the animals that were made vitamin E deficient, obviously they they uh, survive less. So the the consideration of antioxidant protection has to be included when you're talking about a toxic level of inhaler. And in fact, can room air produce oxidant injury in the lungs? And I think it can. If you look at the respiratory distress syndrome in preterm infant, which is basically ARDS, um, and that's considered to be an oxidant injury in the lung. Now, they treat it with surfactant, but, uh, you know, oxygen is going to oxidize. So um, here's the way it works. Um, gestation occurs underwater. Remember, we mentioned that oxygen uh, doesn't dissolve in water. So the fetus is protected during gestation. And because of that, the genes for antioxidant um, only um, become active in the last week of gestation. All right, so if you come out early, you're not going to have uh, any protection from atmospheric oxygen. And of course, that can produce um, damage in the lungs. And I, and I think that is evidence. The other is the uh, retinopathy of prematurity. There is oxygen injury also because you have no antioxidant. So room air can theoretically produce damage if you have no antioxidant protection. And of course, um, when oxygen was first uh, appeared in the atmosphere, it um, all living things died. Um, and it was only the uh, organisms that developed antioxidant protection that were able to uh, come back and survive. And that was called the auction hulk. Uh, and so in a sense, the um, what's happening to premature infants is, is so. So room air oxygen can be damaged. All right. So the conclusions then from this and the first part of uh, the first lecture is that oxygen-related damage is a major threat to organ viability and human survival. To combat this threat, the interior of the body is largely devoid of oxygen, which we said in the first lecture, and attempts to change this condition are met with resistance. In other words, the body wants to stay that, okay? And the second way we combat this threat is a diverse network of antibodies. And that's very different than the uh, traditional way that we look. And of course, the traditional emphasis on promoting tissue oxygenation 
with no regard for antioxidant protection is contrary to all right so what i'm saying is that um, we have to support antioxidant protection especially in conditions like inflammation or when we're providing supplements we have to protect from oxidant injury. and so uh what i'm proposing is that we switch from an oxygen promoting to an octave oxygen protect strategy and that's done by limiting and of course this is going to require studies limiting the use of supplemental oxygen we're all i think now um, letting patients uh, exist at lower um, sats than 90 percent and nothing them so we have to keep going down to see exactly how low you can go uh, we have to promote antioxidant protection we have to monitor antioxidants we have to um, provide antioxidants as they're needed. Most importantly, we need to monitor stress. And here, I think um, using exhale breath analysis may be the way to go. There, um, there are some volatile substances in exhale breath that are uh, that are products of lipid peroxidation, such as pentane and octane, that uh, octane rather, that can be used as um, an index of oxidation. Um, so exhale breath analysis is, uh, I think, a very promising area. Uh, they're using it now in uh, asthmatics to to attempt to uh, determine whether or not steroids are going to help an asthmatic. That's so I think uh, we need to do a lot more research in looking at uh, exhale breath and as an indication. Now, let me tell you, I think the ultimate goal, what we want to do in patients that are injured is ultimately we want to do some state of hibernation. Now, the interesting thing about hibernation is you're not stopping anything. It's not like death where you stop production of antioxidants. It's like sleep. So you're reducing the oxygen consumption, but you're maintaining antioxidant protection. And, and um, that, I think, is a goal that um, we need to strive for. It obviously would be very difficult to mimic hibernation, but if you can get an injured patient to hibernate um, while they're recuperating, I think um, you'll reduce the level of oxidant injury. You'll reduce all the things we have to do to support metabolism rather than firing people up, which is what we do now. As soon as you get injured, more oxygen, more food, we're just, uh, we're fanning the flames. And I think we have to go in the opposite direction. Thank you. And I'm sorry that this took Bye-bye.